Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Thanks for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. In a world of covert culinary criminal coalitions. Jean-Carlo. We chef. Reformed criminal and celebrity chef Butch Orson. Prepare the brigade. We chef. Is dragged back into the dark realm of criminal kitchens. Behind. When old rivals threaten his life's work. Corner. Butch is brought back. Hot. No, 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 no. For one. Last. Cook. Open Pandora's oven. Yes, Chef! John Wick meets Hell's Kitchen in Yes, Chef, a comedic actual play adventure of kooky culinary combat, refried revenge, and untold gastronomic horrors. Yes, Chef is out now on the Dungeons and Drimbus podcast feed. Butchie! A genuine pleasure to see ya. <laughs> Strange happenings are occurring in the world of Exandria. Slayed creatures and beasts from days of yore are returning to the land of the living, and it's up to a band of unlikely heroes to re-slay them. Welcome to the Re-Slayer's Take. Join Jasmine Bular, Jasmine Chung, Jasper Cartwright, and Caroline Lux alongside Game Masters Nick Williams and me, George Primavera, in this Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition role-playing adventure through Critical Role's fantasy world of Exandria. But don't worry, you won't need to know the rules to follow this story. All you need to know is that nothing the players do is scripted or planned, and their fates are determined by their own cleverness and the roll of a 20-sided die. So what the heck are you waiting for? Adventure awaits in the Re-Slayers take. New episodes drop weekly on Mondays wherever you stream your podcasts. Welcome to the Unwell Halloween Special. (laughs) We are here in the living room again with Ellie, Eleanor, Josh, and Jeffrey to share some ghost stories from the Unwell cast and crew. I'm going to have each of our storytellers come and introduce themselves as they tell a story. Eleanor, should I tell a story first? I tell a story. I, Jeffrey, tell us a story. <laughs> tell us a story. It's scary. I'm not, not too scary. So, I think an important thing to know about this is that Mount Absalom is at least in part based on the town of Gambier, Ohio, and to some degree Mount Vernon, Ohio, both of which are in Knox County. Now, I lived there for uh, two periods of my life, uh, when I was an undergrad student at Kenyon College, and then later when I was teaching there. 
Um, and what you should know about the Kenyan campus, which encompasses most of Gambier, is that it is one of the most absurdly haunted places. Uh, it's really wonderful in... You, you like that it's the most haunted place? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's... Uh, you know, it, it, there are these old buildings. We figured out recently that uh, Gambier was founded about the same time Chicago was. Um, but, you know, there have never been more than, you know, seven or eight people in the county, uh, whereas Chicago obviously got huge. Um, nine people. Nine people, <laughs> at least. <laughs> nine people or more here in Cook County, Illinois. Um so, yeah, the thing about, I think, hauntings on campus is that they're really great places for ghost stories to develop because you have a bunch of young people together in a really intense portion of their life and the, the population turns over really quick. So you get to that, like, you can be a saint place where... <laughs> No one uh, who is living in the place actually has met you or the majority of the people who are living in the place have never met you pretty fast. Um, like I was saying, uh, Gambier is uh, a very small town. The school's population is 1,500 and there are a few hundred other people living in the in the area. So very small. Okay. So the first story I want to tell is about the residence hall called Old Kenyon. Now, Old Kenyon is this beautiful, picturesque, but not picturesque, um, <laughs> dorm. It's got these spires. It's, it's on all of the logos on Kenyon's material. Um, and it's one of the oldest buildings. And um, back before... The uh, school went co-ed, which was embarrassingly recently. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think I, I, I purposefully haven't looked up any facts because that's not what Ghost Story is about. But I think this was somewhere probably around the 30s or maybe a little after that. Um, there was a dance at Kenyon. And so uh, some some young ladies from one of the local women's colleges came over and, uh, you know, they had a great time and everyone's in their, their fancified dresses. And then uh, they went back to continue the party in Old Kenyon, the dorm. Oh, and this is like the after party. This is the after party. Scandalous. And the dorm caught fire oh. and burned to the ground. Oh, um, that's cute. Yeah, yeah, well, this is a ghost story. <laughs> I can't um, think of somebody has to die. Yeah. yeah. That fire committed a serious party foul. <sighs> so um, a number of students very sadly lost their lives. Uh, but this was the iconic building for Kenyon. So, of course, they rebuilt it. They went, they dug out the, the plans, the architectural drawings, and they rebuilt it exactly as it had been. Simon says old Kenyon. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, years pass, 
and students at Kenyon start to notice something. There are feet hanging from the second floor ceiling, walking up and down the halls, coming into the rooms at night. Just like ankles and feet, lower legs, wandering through the halls. Visibly not, walking not on the ceiling? Not footsteps. But not like, footsteps, but like... auditory, this is a visual. Apparitions of what? feet coming, sinking down through the ceiling. Oh. That is very weird. So, they go back. They look at the drawings. It had been misconstructed. <gasps> and the ceiling had been raised a foot. Oh, that is so weird. That party did raise the roof. Oh no! And so there were these 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 spectral feet that were locked in the place where they were, uh, forever doomed to wander partway through a floor. Whoa! What? Right? Wow! That is like. Is the reconstruction still standing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. It's still there. I feel like it's got to be bad enough to be a ghost. But to be a ghost who's in the wrong, the wrong place? building, like, oh, yeah. mismatched with the building. That seems Blinch. super uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. And Constantly like, walking through wires and pipes. Uh-huh. I really like what you said also about, like, uh, a college being such a natural breeding ground for that sort of urban legend quality of story. It's the ultimate location for my cousin's friend who mm-hmm. lives in Canada now. And yep. I can't ask easily. But totally swears this happened. Also, like, yeah. the thing about... I mean, you live in a dorm and, like, you hear one weird noise and you're like, that supports the story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Not to mention how many of these have also been debunked over time as being like weird, uh, like issues of physics with uh, weird construction as well. And where better are you going to find that then? Oh, those floating feet are just uh, just the water moving through the pipes. My ghost story that I was going to tell also happened to me in college, was, is a college story, but it's one that happened to me. Partly a, when you work in the theater, weird things happen mm. story. And also a, like, sometimes history is a little too present kind of story. So when I was in college, I took a junior year abroad and I went and I lived in Cape Town, South Africa, <gasps> which was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Um, and while I was there, I was, I was studying in the theater department, among other things. And uh, I was, <laughs> because of the way that that theater department is structured at the University of Cape Town, they don't have a lot of people who are interested in like technical theater. And so I ended up stage managing a show because they, I was one of the few students who had like ever done that before. And um, I ended up stage, man- and I think they, they were really excited to have me stage manage this show because... I am an American and it was an American play. And so they were like, this is great. We can all listen to her accent and it'll be really helpful, (laughs) (laughs) which was kind of hilarious. Um, But it was an American play about slavery, about uh, interrogating. And I, I tried to look it up and I got, I'm really sorry, you guys. I cannot for the life of me remember the name of this play. And I feel bad about the that. The Music Man. 
was not the music man. <laughs> but it was a play. It was a play about um, contemporary black women confronting the legacy of stereotypes that come out of slavery narratives and like what you know how you how you handle those things. And so, first of all, I was the only American in the room for this play that was like all about like American racial history. Mm. And secondly, I was the only white person in the room. Mm. So like everyone else working on this show, the director, all of the actors, like everyone else was black South African, which was an incredible experience to be frank. It was fascinating and I learned a lot from it. Um, Okay, so we're working on this play. It's really interesting. I really like this team. And we finally get to the part of the process where we move from the rehearsal room uh, on one part of campus into the performance space on this other part of campus. And the, the theater department at the University of Cape Town is downtown. And it's in this beautiful colonial and i mean that in all the senses um colonial uh uh, like complex of buildings that were all built like 150 years ago and they're they're gorgeous and and so the theater that we're performing in is in this big hall that um has been there for at least 150 years and uh so we get in there and as the stage manager i get the keys and i get the tour of like this is how the lighting instruments work and here's how you turn on the power and all those things so we get into the 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 performance space for the first time and we are running the show from start to finish for the first time and no tech just like like spacing in the performance space And we get to the part of the play that's like the emotional climax. And it's this really intense scene where there's a lot lot of emotional, heightened emotional stuff going on. Not even going to get into more than that. It's not important. Um, And we get to that point and we sort of hit the point in the play where everything comes to a like emotional, you know, pitch point. And all the lights go out. Everything. Everything just snaps out and the thing about a theater is that it's designed to not let any light in Mm -hmm. so when all the lights go out it is fucking pitch black it is Mm -hmm. just dead to the world black and um this is before smartphones Mm. so like nobody has a flat like there's yeah so um we all kind of like stumble to the door and we we get outside and all of the lights in the entire like campus complex are out and everyone on the team is really freaked out. We're all like, that was really intense and feels like it was about us. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I, I, that feels like it was about us. Anybody else? So we're all super freaked out. Um, and we kind of like chill outside and we like run lines for a little while. And, and after a while, somebody figures out that ostensibly this happened because a car ran into a, um, like a power interchange thing on the sidewalk outside mm-hmm. and it had knocked out the lights for the whole block. Um, yeah, but we were all terrified. Okay. So that happens. And then, uh, Maybe like a week later, I come into the theater and as the stage manager, you know, you always show up before everybody else. And so I show up in the theater and I'm kind of like getting everything set up. I come into the, you know, big empty space, which is like, 
don't know, as a theater professional, I've always, I always found that um, standing in empty theaters is like a really intense, like really cool and intense feeling. Yes. It's like, this is a place with a lot of like power somehow where like, cool, like all this stuff happens. And when it's empty and it's just you, it's just, I don't know. There's like, there's a lot of... It's like being in a sanctuary. Yeah, there's like... A, yes, it is. It's like being in a church there's, all by yourself. Like... Yeah, there's also a way in which, I don't know, I have definitely sat in empty, especially empty theaters where there's nothing on the stage. And like, you kind of can't help but imagine the like... Yeah. 10,000 things that have happened on the stage, especially a very old theater. Yeah. Like totally. just how many different quote-unquote lives have been lived out on the stage in every infinite kind of permutation. So I'm like having that experience. Yeah. And I go up to the booth and I go to like do my regular thing and like flip all the things on and nothing will come on. Nothing. Like I go in the basement, I flip the, I flip the like, um, breakers on and off i i like i try literally everything i can think of no nothing i cannot get a single light to come on in the entire space um all of the like all of the like regular like the ghost light and the like which if you don't know a ghost light is like the light you put on the stage when everything else is out so that people don't hurt themselves um uh, and like the, you know, fluorescence worked fine, but like none of the theatrical lights would turn on. And I just was like, I started to feel like really spooked out by it. I was like, mm-hmm. this feels like something is happening in this space that I don't understand. And mm-hmm. um, so that happened twice. Like, like that happened. And I like had a whole conversation with the tech director for the department. And like, he came and helped me like figure out what he thought had happened. And then I came back another couple days later, it happened again. And I was like, it's still not working. So I started to just like have this very deep feeling like um, something about this space was like, there was a lot more. So I started doing this thing. I don't know. You so you do stuff like I, it felt right. But I started doing this thing where every time I would walk in the theater, I would go like, hello, I'm here. Hope you're having a good day. Like I would just like talk to the room and then I would do it again when I was leaving at the end of the night. I'd be like, hey, I'm going to go now. Please don't break anything while I'm gone. Okay, bye. Like I like I just started having this conversation with the space. And um, okay, so then we get like a couple more days in a tech. And the, the woman in the cast who was playing one of the lead roles she and I ended up at the theater early one day together and we were sitting outside and we were chatting and she of everybody on the team had gotten really deep into sort of like understanding the history of this show, which I found really interesting because, you know, I was an American and so I had studied a lot about like the American South and slavery and racism in the US and I had context, but she really didn't like this was all for her really new. And so she'd been doing all this research and, looking into all these things. And so we're chatting about that and sort of like the experience she was having reading all this stuff and whatever. And then she goes, so I came across this really weird, this thing while I was, while I was doing my research that like sort of freaked me out about the history of slavery in Cape Town. Okay. So I'm going to go on a little bit of an aside now because I I find, I think this is really interesting and it's relevant. Okay. So Cape Town in Southern Africa has its own history of slavery and not unlike in the in the states you know it was 
people people thought it was a real good idea to import your slaves from another continent because then they can't run away back to their families. Mm-hmm. And oversimplify it um and so in southern africa in south africa the colonial powers would import slaves from southeast asia they would bring people in from malaysia and thailand and enslave them in south africa and so there is a whole portion of south african culture which is about the sort of intersection of Southeast Asian folks who were brought there as slaves, and then the way that that those cultures intermingled with the local African culture, just huh. fascinating and a yeah. whole other story. But okay, so you have this long history of a slave trade in South Africa that has a lot of parallels to the ones the one in the states, but is also different and unique in really particular ways. And this woman who I was working with, she says, you know, I've been I I was doing this reading about that history, and I didn't know this until just the other day. But this building where we're performing is where they used to hold those slaves when they got off the ship. Whoa. And this courtyard that we're sitting in is where they would do the slave auctions. And she said. I think that's why this space is resonating so powerfully with this story we're telling. And I, then I told her the story about how I couldn't get the lights to work. And she was like, yeah, I think these, I think these things are related. Um, so she and I both, the two of us went and had a conversation with the space. We like, we went into the building and sort of like just sat there and talked about it for a little while and after that, the lights worked fine. Wow. And we didn't have any more problems. OMG. It was really powerful. <laughs> Good God. Yeah. Oof. Just to discover that's the space you're in and you've been in it and yeah. not at all aware. And yep. then suddenly, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely the context of a scary movie. Yeah. But yours had a much better ending. Well, and I think the, the the kind of awareness of, you know, we are walking and, and this is such a this is such an important thing, particularly for Americans, but I, I'm sure for everyone else, but like we are always walking in spaces that where crimes mm-hmm. against humanity have been committed. Yeah. yeah. And like and there is such an importance of that awareness. Yeah. The Fable and Folly Network supports creators of exceptional audio stories, including the one you're listening to right now. If you love our shows, we want to hear from you. Complete our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey. This will help us learn more about you, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, and how we can maintain an inclusive, safe atmosphere. As a thank you for your participation, we have extras and behind-the-scenes content from your favorite shows. Fans make the network what it is. Thanks for listening, and we can't wait to hear from you. Find our listener survey at fableandfolly.com slash survey today. It is early May in 1934, Saturday night, late, 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 like two in the morning. And Guy and Josephine Malloy are on their way home. 
Guy and Josephine are the classic power couple. High school sweethearts started work straight out of high school at Neiman Marcus, the fancy <laughs> department yep. store downtown, and worked their way up to being the top of the heap. Josephine is the lead executive assistant there, and Guy is the head window dresser. And so they've been there super late because Guy was getting all of the displays perfect for the start of summer sales that are gonna be opening that Sunday. And so this is another one of the things that's nice about being married to the executive assistant because <laughs> you don't have to worry about keys or things like that. But it was still a very long, day of work. They are tired, they are cranky, and they are speeding home to their place in White Rock Lake. It is so late at night, they're even taking the chance of doing that shortcut around the lake because usually that's the haven for like teenage drag racers and stuff like that. But they figure it's probably late enough that they're not gonna have to worry about that. It'll just be a quicker jaunt home. And as Guy is thinking about putting on a nice comforting robe and not even having his hot toddy, he'll just crash and then maybe they'll have a, a margarita or Bloody Mary in the morning. Josephine says, Guy, stop the car right now. Uh-oh. Now, I said that they were uh, high school sweethearts. That means that they have been together since high school. Mm -hmm. They're not young anymore. They've worked their way up through Neiman Marcus. They are older side they're in their late 40s so they know how to fight <laughs> guy also knows when not to fight there's been many a time when josephine has said to him i didn't spend all day saying yes mr neiman just so i could come home and say yes mr malloy yeah that's right mm -hmm. true. yeah true uh-huh so guy stops the car and he says wait and josephine who is cranky at this point we've established, says, did you not see that child back there oh, no. sopping oh. wet? Now, and again, they're in their late 40s, so for her, child means 16 or 17. This was obviously a teenager. And Guy says, oh, honey, don't make us stop. We're just so close to getting home. And she says, did you see, so you saw her? And he <laughs> says, <laughs> <sighs> yes, dear. And she says, and you think we're going to go straight home instead of helping that poor girl? No, dear. Oh, no. The poor girl that I saw was clearly wearing a Neiman Marcus designed dress. <laughs> <laughs> well, re relevant. And if anything, Guy knows Neiman Marcus and he grumbles to himself, yeah, from a couple of seasons ago. Oh, no. Oh. And Josephine says, Guy Malloy, we are going back there because if there's one thing that we insist on at Neiman Marcus, it is taking care of our customers. <laughs> At three in the morning. <laughs> he drives back, and sure enough, there is this poor little waif, and she's got soaking wet hair, and she's got a soaking dress, and she just looks kind of lost and really grateful that they stopped. And she says, hello, ma'am. And Josephine says, oh, hello, dear. What are you doing out here so late? And she said, oh, ma'am, if you could help me, I'd really appreciate it. I was out with some friends and we were boating and the boat capsized and my friends are all safe and fine, but I still have to get home. And Josephine says, oh, of course, honey, we'll make sure you get home. And she says, thank you, ma'am. I live over in Oak Lawn. And Guy says, that's across town. And Josephine says, <laughs> we will make sure you get home. 
She says, thank you very much, ma'am. I'll just crawl in the back. I don't want to get anything wet on your nice upholstery. And sure enough, they let her in, and she scoots in the back. And they don't say anything else for the rest of the drive, because obviously Guy is not in the mood for small talk. He was so close to his bedding gown. And Josephine, well, she tries, but after a while, it's pretty clear that the poor thing is kind of shaken up. Maybe she's in shock. They haven't invented shock yet. It's it's in the 1930s. That's probably what's happening. Yeah. So they're just going to get her home. And they're at the main intersection leading into the Oak Lawn neighborhood. And Josephine turns around to say, now, can you just direct us from here? Guy, she's gone. And Guy says, what do you mean she's gone? Oh, no. What? And Josephine says, did she get out of the car? And Guy says, honey, it's a coupe. So, you know, clearly she would have <laughs> So they still wind their way through that neighborhood until they find the address that the girl had given them in the first place. And Josephine needs closure here. So she goes and she knocks on the door at God knows what time at this point until this elderly man, maybe their age, comes out and says, can I help you? And Josephine says, sir, I'm so sorry, but we were just helping a young girl and she said that she lived here and she was sopping wet and we wanted to make sure that she got home okay. Did did she come up on you? And he says, that's impossible. My daughter died two years ago. Yeah, she drowned she in White Rock Lake. Yeah, she did. Tonight would have been her prom night. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and they good. found a tiara Very in the back seat. <laughs> I, love it. I love it. It was a Neiman Marcus prom dress from two years ago. That's true. It's ridiculous. I was looking at that, like uh, Dallas top twelve like best ghost stories, uh-huh. and this was one of the ones that hit. And I've just always loved so many different oh, parts so of good. that kind of story. Uh, yeah. Was she eating one of those like great Neiman Marcus cookies? I'm sure she must have been. <laughs> oh man! And that is the crazy thing to me as well is like a lot of the different iterations of this story really went ham on the Neiman Marcus and uh, Neiman Marcus cross promotion too. She was very clearly wearing a Neiman Marcus gown in several of them. I don't know why that plays so prominently. The 12 best Dallas ghost stories brought to you by Neiman Marcus. (laughs) But this was legit actually originally published sometime in the 1930s in Dallas. Yeah. And so I don't know if if that's the original version of this or just a original version of this. Good story. Yeah. Thanks, Ellie. So, so one of the other things that you should know about Knox County, uh, on which Lodge County, aka the the seat of Mount Absalom, is partially based, is that the tallest building in Knox County is Capel's Hall. Uh, Capel's is nine stories tall. I lived uh, on the third floor, I believe, um, my sophomore year. It was lovely. Um, it's a little bit of that kind of um, 70s architectural brutalism. It's got one big elevator going up and down the center. So the story goes, sometime in the 80s, maybe, uh, there was a student comes home from partying. Um, he's just broken up with his girlfriend, 
who lives on the seventh floor. So he gets in the elevator. He goes up. Cable's elevator is very slow. The lights don't work great. They kind of flicker, even now. And it lurches to a halt at the seventh floor. He gets out. He goes and pounds on her door. It's 2 a.m. She's just broken up with him. She doesn't want to hear from him. No. She ignores him. You you hear the elevator buzz in the back. He pounds on the door again. She says, go away. And he throws up his hands, goes back to the elevator and presses the button. But the cable's elevator is very slow. And he's very drunk. Oh, no. And he gets impatient. Like you do. And so he pries open the door Uh and steps into the elevator shaft and falls seven, six, five, four, three, two, one to the floor of Cables. Um, As I understand it, stories say that he passes away on the ambulance ride, but um, clearly the, the emotional impact is here in Cables. So now this story was told to me by Dan Turner, who uh, I was very sad to hear uh, passed a number of years ago. Dan was the head of security while I was a student at Kenyon and uh, led an amazing ghost tour every year, at least every year that I was there. And I went every year. It was incredible he knew all the stories and he knew just how to tell them so um i really just try to to follow in his footsteps here so he was there on campus during the summer now summers in gambier i've been there once uh and they are very strange it is empty there are you know again we have a few students who are doing summer research Sometimes there are, you know, a few writers or other people who are there working, you know, coming there for a quiet place to work, but it is empty. So Dan, as head of security, is going around the campus um, and gets a call and says, hey, I think some kids have broken into cables. There are lights on. And that building has been locked up. No one, no one stays in Cables over the summer. There are much nicer historic dorms for that. So he goes and room 711, its light is on. And so he goes up and he turns it out. And it comes back down, goes outside, and the light's on again. And so he goes back and says, okay, well, I guess, I guess I didn't secure it. And so he locks the door again, goes up, turns the light off, comes down. And then he gets a call from the switchboard. And he said, hey, what's going on with the phones? He says, what do you mean? This person on the switchboard says, we just had one ring in room 711 and one ring in 611. Ah! <laughs> and one in 511, 411, 311, wow. 211, no, first no, floor. No, 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 no. And he looks back up, and room 711's light is back on. 
and that light burned all night. Mm-hmm. And he just left. <laughs> yep, that's the right answer at that point. Uh-huh. Yep. Sometimes the answer is nope. Yeah. There were stories about water taps going on uh, when no one was there. And maybe that's just faulty plumbing, but maybe not. All right, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We'll be back with more in two weeks, and I hope your Halloween is safe and just the right level of creepy. Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. I'm Carlotta Botox, actress, thinktress, and influenceress, and I'm spilling all the tea on Hollywood. Name? Carlotta Botox. B-O-T-O-X. Spell the first name. It's actually Botox. B-E-A-U-T-O-X. Of course it is. First name? Botox is actually my last name. My first name... Okay there, who's on first? I know it's your last name. Now I want you to spell your first name. Oh, Carlotta. It's C-A-R, as in the automobile. (sighs) L-O-T-T-A, like a lot of talent. (laughs) Wow. Just... Wow. There's also an umlaut. The f- the umlaut? It's two dots and it goes over okay, the... Okay, Carlotta, two dots. Just take a seat over there. We'll call you when we're ready. Meanwhile, we'll bird our loins. Check out the Carlotta Botox Chronicles. Available now on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher.